Welcome to the initial episode of Cloud Control. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Today's guest is Christine Puccio. Christine is a seasoned professional with a diverse and extensive background in cloud operations and managing partnerships. With over 20 years of experience in the tech industry, she has worked for F5, Sun Microsystems, and Red Hat. Throughout her career, she has held various leadership roles and excelled at helping businesses navigate the complex cloud ecosystem. She has a strong focus on helping organizations analyze and optimize their tech stacks with a particular emphasis on cloud procurement and marketplace integrations. In addition to her work with established enterprises, she's also very active in the startup scene. Her experience working with startups has allowed her to develop a keen understanding of the unique challenges that cloud native companies face, as well as the opportunities they present for growth and innovation. As a consultant with her company, Mercata, Christine aims to provide strategic guidance and support to businesses, helping them identify the right solutions and the right personnel to address their cloud-related challenges. And without further ado, let's get into our interview with Christine Puccio. Thank you. Nice introduction. The idea of cloud ops is nothing new, but it's something many engineers and many in leadership find themselves responsible for. In this episode, we're going to just kind of talk about what cloud ops is, how it works, things to look out for, and then we're going to talk about how to manage the world of the cloud when it comes to your, your specific challenges and then things that you might run into. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen or have identified as cloud computing and cloud ops has evolved from the idea of excess capacity with Amazon to where it is today, where it's a multi-billion dollar industry? Oh, gosh, that's, there's a lot there. So let, let's talk about the beginning of that and, and what I've seen, you know, from where I worked. Um, you mentioned Tackle, and I've actually worked with them as a partner. But before that, you know, my career really started with Sun and then the to Red Hat. And when I was at Red Hat, I started in the cloud division or working with AWS in particular when I was working with SAP. And that was back in 2014. And so, you know, and we were just talking about this the other night. It's, you know, then it was first party services on EC2. That was kind of the pre-marketplace boom, if you will. And so in order to create any type of offering on the cloud, like there's a whole backend system that you have to build out in order to really in the, the quote to cash, order to cash operations model. And so, you know, having seen how complex that was, making the shift over to a startup like Nginx and then with F5, it was a completely different model with with uh, Marketplace because they did all the billing, they did all the reporting, they did all that uh, automatically for you. And so I think the biggest challenge was, was that here you are taking a digital channel that is not that is un un unknown inside of a company's infrastructure and trying to scale that out with the existing operations that you have in place and then it becomes kind of the sidecar and and people want me to you know back then it was like oh my gosh we got to clean this up and it, it wasn't it, and it always kind of falls into sales to do but it really is a company-wide initiative just like go to market go to market is a ceo focused driven initiative and i do believe that cloud is a ceo driven initiative because there's multiple organizations that need to participate yeah that's that's really true the i mean when it comes to having a cloud presence and offering a cloud service it really is the whole company that has to participate and really rethink how 
to approach, especially, and you bring up a good point. You've worked for a lot of legacy companies who have moved into the cloud. And I think that that's one thing we talk about a, a lot about cloud native companies and how they're born in the cloud and come from this cloud first strategy. But from okay. your experience, what has it been like working for these companies that are either late to the cloud or hopped onto the cloud already as these big behemoths and had to pivot, right? I look at it like a freight line or like a freight liner that has to make a sudden move to avoid something. And it's not really that easy in an organization like Red Hat or Microsoft. So what's that been like for you? And what, what are some big takeaways that you've learned that you would give to other companies that are in that position? Yeah, uh, great question. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, for the cloud first companies, you know, when I worked for um, JFrog, it, they had their own marketplace, their private marketplace. So still, cloud marketplaces are seen as, as a sidecar. They did a very good job, though, of, of, in, of including it. I think from a Red Hat perspective, the model, right, it was the model in place. You had corporate development who had a very small team of folks that were focused on cloud. And that was from uh, finances. That was from like a financial model, the pricing and all of that. And you had uh, more go to market, like somebody looking at the marketing strategy. And then you had a VP who was looking at the strategic uh, agreements that were made with each provider. And then you had a sister to that, which was in sales under the partnership organization where they would execute on, on the strategy. And then as it developed, there became more synergy between these two groups. And I, that's what I loved about being at Red Hat. I managed Google. Um, I actually left a management job um, at managing globalized visa. I could move to just managing Google because I wanted to really understand the models. And I really developed a good relationship and got to be in some very cool meetings with uh, Paul Vermeer and, and some others. So it was, a, you know, sitting and listening to a lot. But the model there, I really enjoyed. And the company was behind it. Red Hat never made a decision. If they were going to go in, they were going to go in. And it approves to, to who they are today. Um, and I think with, with F5, what we had there still was a CEO who was very critical into wanting to understand where we were going with the partnerships. But the EVP of sales, it helped that he actually had the VP of cloud job before. And so he understood the complexities. So that to me was was a saving grace because I thought, okay, so they're they're getting and understanding the world a little bit more. So I was really blessed in those two or in in those two. It's really difficult though when you hire a VP of cloud and they're in and nobody really understands what that makeup exists of. And and then you kind of get everything dumped everything. Oh, what about the regions? How are they performing? You're like, well, wait a minute. Um so I think it's the business model really that we and not just me, like the extended team that we were all working in sync. F5 is a unique company where they took their hardware platform and really had to re-engineer it for the cloud, right? And we've seen this with other companies. In fact, we've seen it with several that have tried to figure out how to re-engineer. What kind of planning goes into saying, hey, we're going to not exit the hardware business, but we're going to make a real radical pivot and move away from the hardware focus and start offering the same thing that you would normally buy through a normal acquisition cycle. How do you, how, what, what kind of goes into that decision in the back, in the background, right? I, I come from a DevOps background and practitioner, yeah. but I've never 
been able to see those strategic decisions where a company like Cisco or a company like F5 says, we're taking our core secret sauce and putting it into the cloud. So can you walk us through just kind of a high level of what those discussions are like? Yeah, I think, you know, from F5's perspective, um, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of similarities between um, how they operated um, with their customers, very similar to AWS. They really took the the customer lens, and I and I attribute that to Francois, who's now um, you know at um, of that company. And when you look at it from the customer lens, we were really built into you know all of the enterprise customers, right? We we own like forty eight out of the fifty top enterprise you know Fortune fifty companies. So you know at some point you know, they're moving to the cloud, right? And and hardware is not moving to the cloud, and so they they really refactored what was big IP. But they also knew that building it themselves versus acquisition, you, they had to look at that that model. And so, as we were continuing to develop with the cloud providers, we signed our there was a huge contract we signed uh, with AWS a strategic agreement that my team and, and others um, helped negotiate. But as we started moving into getting more customers, we understood where we had to look to seek to get acquisition in other places, and then they bought Altera distributed edge cloud computing, you know, all cloud enabled to the edge. And so then you have to really reorganize business units. I mean, there was major reorganization happening, but it didn't happen um, nonchalantly. It was like a year in process. It was like very methodical. And that's the other thing I think is that you have to do this in a very methodical way because it takes maybe organizations and people and processes and you have to be really aware because they were getting most of the revenue from those customers. So it is a balance. And I'll tell you, I learned so much working for that company um, and um, still continue to be awed by their successes. That's awesome. So just kind of building off of that, you've mentioned working with strategic alliances with hyperscalers. And, you know, when we say hyperscalers, we mean the big three, AWS, Azure, GCP. You could, I guess, okay. we could include Oracle in that discussion, just because they're they're cloud they're they're making a real investment in OCI. How do you manage those strategic yes. alliances, right? Well, like, what goes into having a successful alliance with a mega vendor like an AWS or an Azure, where there's so much behind the scenes, po- not politics, but just the barriers? How do you, how have you effectively managed those relationships and built them into the successes that you've that you've had over your career? Well, Red Hat was unique because of the incredible investment by Red Hat yeah. and also Red Hat And so we had um, really nice executive alignment. When I came in to manage that, it had never been managed globally. So there was a lot of, you know, kind of resetting and, and, and kind of looking at how we structure it. But, you know, in that example, it was like we looked at the growth rates. Are we where we need to be? And if we're not, then what are the initiatives that we need to do together? And it was really a joint effort. And it's bringing in the product teams to have the engineering half day. It was, okay, now we're going to riff off of, you know, the ideas that happen in, in there and see how we can tailor that into more of a go-to-market. At that time, um, I hadn't worked on SAP for like five years. That's why I went to Red yeah. Hat. And so, you know, how was the SAP business? We were, you know, basically not even paying attention to it at that point in the cloud. But what if we did more here? And so it was really a collaboration. But what's, what is complex about something like that is there's so many programs to tap into they have so many resources and it's like 
you have to buffer the noise and stay very focused on what is the intent of the relationship, you know, you know, and, and build a model that will, okay, we're not going to address this this year, but this is going to be year uh-huh. two. And then you're, and, and so that's kind of how we, we looked at it. And, and at a five, it was more of, you know, we wanted to enter in security. So what does that look like? How do we become a security partner? What are the things that we need to do? So it's knowing where the sweet spot is for both companies. And, and, you know, we have to, I'm a firm believer in being very transparent with the partners and saying, this is, these are our needs and our wants. And, and they give us that. So it really truly is, it has to be a partnership. I mean, you wear both hats when you're in alliances. You're, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ambassador internally uh-huh. for the providers. And then I'm also an ambassador within the cloud providers for the company. With two mega organizations. So let's take F5 and in AWS, how do you enable the engineers and the SAs to turn around and sell your product and act as advocates for the FI, the big IP platform, or just whatever you're bringing to the, because a big part of alliances is building that relationship, not only from F or your organization to the scaler, but the scaler taking it to their customers and saying, Hey, we think this is a valuable solution. And we, we, we're willing to help architect it out for you. How do you, how, how have you found getting engineers to buy into that when it, when it impacts them and it's kind of a secondary duty that they have to deal with as SAs and, uh, architects? <laughs> oh, oh my God. This is such a fun question. Okay. So, um, I'll really start with any company. Okay. It could be a, a SaaS company, right? So in order to create differentiation, there has to be a build with component. There really does. There has to be a way for you to either look at what applications that someone like an Amazon or AWS or, or AWS or, or Microsoft or GCP has. And in the in the um, F5 example, there is an arch technology. We were looking at, you know, cloud uh, front at that time and we kind of piped that in. We were able to actually sell that as a part of that platform. And that took executive sponsorship, right? That was putting the plan in front of the executives, e-staff, and having them sign off. And that's any company should be doing that um, because they are investments. So if, if the executive team, once again, is not bought in, it is not going to be a rosy seat. And, you know, the opposite side, so let's just, you know, rave our magic one. We have this, you know, build with solution. We, you know, how do we get market? And so it's really finding the friendly people in the field, like the SAs. They're like, man, I really want to tinker with this. And you just throw resources at that person, right? Create your community, create your evangelist and start small. And that's what we did. We went to very friendly, you know, sales directors and VPs, and they helped build our value proposition, quite frankly. And then we went back and, and pressure tested it. And, and that's how we started. And then the, and then the compensation is always the big one too. Like there has to be a level playing field with compensation and no friction. Now it's, you know, looking at who you're going to make your superstars, executive buy-in from the build with, and no friction, or at least the least amount of friction as possible for sale. So you brought up security as fitting into part of your business model when you're a cloud native company. So I've got two questions around that. Number one, where does security fit into a cloud ops platform or cloud ops engineering struggle? Should it be 
how, how do you weigh security versus operational excellence, right? I guess you want your platform to run as quickly and as most efficiently as possible. And a lot of times we've seen the engineers and we've, to their detriment, dial security back to in the name of usability. Where do you think security would fit and how do you ensure that culture of security when you're managing a product like an F5 or a Red Hat? How does that come into the play? Well, I'll take, I will take the marketplace type of operations approach to this. Okay. Now, you know, when you're starting small, you know, your bookings and things like that, you can kind of get away with, you know, shimming it and kind of like, you know, Frankensteining these things together a bit. Like how do we book in Salesforce? How do we look at the royalty reports? How do we take that, you know, out? Whatever's private offers, how do we book? But at some point you reach a tipping point where you have to really look at how are we auditing this? So from a finance perspective, that's why finance is really critical as you start to grow. You have to be able to look at how many manual hops does it take in order to um, to book and close and reconcile. And those hops are all human error, open for human error. And you, you could either hire people to do that or you can automate it. And the biggest struggle that I have seen is in compliance. So when you're looking at and when you're looking at, you know, an auditor saying, I see four gaps, you're entering an order into Salesforce, then you're entering it over into this system. How do you know that you reconcile? There's no automation. And then we go and we write a report numbers to the street. How do we know that our numbers are even reconciling? That's where I've seen it, the where it's starting to hit. And in fact, uh, with Mercata, with my company, I've actually um, partnered with a compliance and security partner because that's not my expertise, but I know I know it's critical for that cash operation. Or I see it from a from an operational perspective. And that's the way it should be seen as a GRC nerd and a guy that's gone through many different so I so background, I used to work for a company that did GRC compliance software. And I took their operations from a client server application and shifted it into a cloud that was running on VMs and then started working on containerization. How do you containerize GRC, right? And so many companies rely on their GRC programs as key, as strategic partnerships because it makes or breaks how you work in the cloud. And I don't think that a lot of people understand the impacts of how a SOC 2 or an ISO or those kind of regulatory molds really impact a SaaS company. Absolutely affect it. Like their major, like SOX compliancy is, is, you know, top of mind. Any, any, any VP of finance, it's top of mind. And with the explosion of now RevOps, right? Now we're now we're looking at throwing sales and operations and revenue and BI all in the same group. That's where the compliance yep. hits. And so there's interesting companies like, um, Oh, I don't remember the company. I think it's open and out. I'll have to find a But all they do is look at your operations process workflow. And and so it's like we're starting to see now some of these companies, these SaaS companies build their model around helping customers address it, which is which is what we'll see. You know, over the last two years, we've really seen a, a discussion about how to manage the cloud as this big idea. And we've seen it come down to where we're going to start, where we've talked about how we're going to manage specific um, perceived threats when it comes to data management. How do you foresee legislative impacts impacting 
at the world of cloud ops. What what do you see coming down the pipe that engineers and practitioners probably should be ready for from a simple as banning TikTok in the United States to major <laughs> overhaul of a patchwork to our detriment of 50 or 60 different um, data privacy laws as states start to enact their own. What do you? How do you see that turning out? And what, what should we look out for so that we're prepared for it? Well, um, I don't know if I can get into all the like, my feelings around the ban of TikTok and things like that. Uh, I'm not a user, um, but you know, for me, I think what we're starting to see is develop. And let's just take it from the developer's perspective. Developers, um, <clears throat> as they develop applications, AI becomes really critical in, into that into that pipeline. And to being as a company actually that infuses AI within the development lifecycle. So, for example, if you are caught and you're running into an error and you want to understand and figure out where the error is within your application that you're developing, the the models that are that are working uh, within that development stack that are built for AI, they'll be able to actually look at rhythms and be able to identify. And so, what that does is it frees up the developer's time to act on to remove this operations piece and almost focus more on the creativity. So I think AI is going to be taking in a front and center approach to how we actually address some of that, quite frankly. Um, it'll be built into that life cycle. And I think that's super exciting. Um, as far as regulation, I mean, I'm I'm very nervous about all the data that's out there. You know, I mean, our data is out there, right? My daughter's data is out there. You know, people can get and download a picture at any time and post it somewhere else. Like, there is just still this kind of free world when it comes to data and and I will tell you, I don't know if I have a little to it, but I know it scares me. I don't think anybody has an answer to it. I, I mean, we all have hot takes and ideas about how to manage it, but I don't think that there's, until government and corporations start working together, there's really no way to wrangle it. And the idea of every single state having their own version of a privacy law scares the crap out of me, just from a practitioner standpoint, because then you have to adjust for that at the operations level. How do we do business in California versus Utah versus New York versus well, South Carolina. It's just going to become a data. It's going to become a nightmare, right? And GDPR isn't perfect, but at the same time, it was a good start. And I think that trying to say we're going to do the complete opposite is just to our detriment. You mentioned your daughter. Yep. And then one of the things that you did at Red Hat was you started the neurodiversity initiative at Red Hat. So talk to me a little bit about the neurodiversity initiative and what it's meant to you in your career and kind of how you started it and where it's at now and your thoughts behind it. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy you asked me about that. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, my daughter uh, was diagnosed with uh, PDD-NRS, which was at the time, you know, the, on the spectrum. And she was three, that was like back in 2009. And so I... Um, had to kind of relearn how to look at the world through her lens, which was completely an utter, I'm still learning. I, I was still never understand. Um, but what led me to that at Red Hat was um, I started being more vocal about it. And quite frankly, I was hiding it because I don't want people to believe that I wasn't present at my job because it is a second job. It's a very, you know, it's very time consuming. And so I had been working with a lot of therapists and, and um, with her, and I decided that I would launch this near diversity at Red Hat. 
um, because SAP did autism at work and you had EY with theirs and uh, with their group and then Microsoft. So I'm like, why not Red Hat? And when I launched it, I had 200 people join the community immediately. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with Temple Grandin, who is very famous in the um, autistic community. And she was saying, like, you don't have to really hire people who have autism. They already work for you, which I thought was brilliant. So we started tailoring um, Red Hat around, um, do you have the right book environment for people who are more introverted or um, who, you know, are affected by noise or, you know, anything that would disrupt a work environment. And the open work environment is really not conducive to your, to that at all. And, and I could tell you, know, you know, Zooming during school and the pandemic was also not good. So I'm, I've actually just recently submitted a TED talk to really um, have people understand the criticality of the court system when you know parents get divorced and you have a child who has a disability uh, we still live in a very archaic court system and i've been learning from a lot of different um, custody evaluators on how they look at that so that's really my sweet spot is looking at how to help families and i'm launching uh, the Casty plan which will be uh, a website with just a bunch of resources for parents to use on how to meander through um you know one thing about that too is that you have kids who you know, are, are, you know, younger and they're in jail and, you know, and, and they get their cases reviewed every year. But the, the child with the disability does not get a custody evaluation and that parenting contract is frozen until they're like 18. So if you're divorcing like I was when she was two, that is a very outdated and there's no review sure. at all. So we're treating this, you know, community of children with disabilities that is significant disadvantage when the when we need to capture them at that age and, and help them so i'm very passionate about it <laughs> and there'll be more coming from me definitely there well we'll look forward to it do you find that as i don't want to say it's becoming more widely accepted but i think that companies are dealing with it differently right like you mentioned all these companies that kind of pay attention to it just not only from a autism diagnosis, right? Where you have to go and provide proof and everything, but just kind of identifying employees that might be on the spectrum that don't want to talk about it. Do you find that more tech workers are coming into that because they feel comfortable with program with companies that have programs like these? Or do you think it's something that we need to work on as an industry and be more accepting and open and vocal about like we are with other DEI initiatives? Oh, I, I absolutely think we need to be more vocal with it. I think that companies say that they're backing it, you mm -hmm. know, to an extent. I think it needs to belong in the training organization for managers. It is a unique personality that you need to understand on how to work with somebody who has anxiety, who has gets overwhelmed by different projects. Um, we have to be able to at least identify and have um, a rapport with your with the team that you manage because somebody could be in fact I actually had somebody reach out to me didn't know um, at another company because they believed that they needed help in working with a particular employee and I felt that I found that so heartwarming and so just giving strategies on how to do that I think it belongs in management training that's what we were trying to do at Red Hat before I left um, but there's a unique style I think to support P does a great job, by the way. They're amazing. Really? That's great to know. 
you know, another thing that you're really passionate about and involved in is women in tech. And I, I, um, I want to talk to a, a little bit about that as cloud computing grows, as it becomes more this idea. Like I remember when I told my parents I was going to go start doing cloud stuff, my mom just looked at me like I was from outer space. And But cloud is really becoming a ubiquitous term now. And how do we... Yeah. What tips for, uh, this is a two-part question. First part is what tips for underrepresented communities, women, people of color, uh, people on the autism spectrum, uh, how do you, how do they make waves and get, and really break into this industry? And then the second part is this industry is really dominated by guys like me, white, boring men that have made their career from tech all the way up to where I am now, but how can we men be better allies and really help with these initiatives and make it so that these members of these communities that are up underrepresented feel more welcome and valued as members of this community? Uh, well, okay. So I'll, I'll answer what really helped for me. Okay. Um, I had wonderful sponsorship, um, when I was working at these companies and I would simply ask to be in the meeting, whether, you know, you know, there was a great example of there was a Google meeting happening and I really didn't need to be there. I was the Alliance person, but I really wanted to be in that room just to listen and learn. And so um, I had asked one of the people, can I, can I join, you know, I, I'll just sit there, just going to take notes. And, and they're like, absolutely. It was very inclusive. And so I got to, I got to be at the table and listen to how we were going to say no to something with with Google and and it just I soaked it up and I had that opportunity and and I think sometimes women are shy and asking for those opportunities and so if you can just bring them along with you in the meeting to sit down even though it could be something completely different it's it's just exposing the world a little bit more instead of it being so closed um, I'm huge on open source I mean, open source, you know, just love the model that open source is not just technology, it's open ideas. Mm -hmm. And so get the most creativity when you bring a diverse crowd together. And so I always say, just, you know, bring, bring people in with you to a meeting, get, get, get a mentor. I actually just spoke at women in uh, tech emotion and one of the women reached out to me and she wanted me to mentor her. And she was talking about AI and, and and she has a development tool. She goes, what happens when you get out of a, a class like well, who code? Where do I go next? So she created scripts that you could actually move to and create very generic scripts. And she's made this whole website. So I'm like, oh my God, we got to get this out in the wild. I'm volunteering my time. I do that because I'm passionate about, you know, making it easier of an entry for women because tech can be kind of scary. Um, and I think with chat G, uh, GPT, that actually opens the door to more women. I also take risks <laughs> and, and some have not worked, but I look back and I go, but I learned you have to be willing to go. Yeah. Yeah. That was maybe not a good idea, but I still tried. Um, and, and that's it. You have to take a risk. What's the biggest lesson? And so two parts, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in your career and your favorite out of the box solution that you really took off? Can you give us some examples of those? I think when we were, when we built, um, mar the marketplace processes at F5, I remember telling my team, like, what if we just got compensated on marketplace? And they all looked at me like I was crazy. 
and uh, we were really ready to move the ship that that much. But the amount of increase in percentage of revenue that we saw within that one year, because and then we also partnered with Tackle. We kind of, you know, like I said before, we kind of framed for the same things together. Um, I had somebody on my team actually say, you know, Christine, I doubted you on on that on the vision of where you went. He goes, but I stand corrected. That was like my best moment. I was like, yes. I go, I had no idea if it was going to work either, but you know, I was going to try. And that's the thing. I'll, I'll, I'll go down, I'll go down and swing it. I'll try anything. I think that the biggest lesson that I have learned is patience. And since in the sense of where I'm not too, um, I'm not too fast to hire. I want to understand the problem that I'm solving for before I understand the persona that I need. And I think right now, as we are completely hitting this growth acceleration with cloud and cloud operations and, and getting to market and going to market, um, that hire the right people. And sometimes you just don't know who that is until you get your hands dirty and go into that 500 foot level and start digging. And um, I learned that. And that was, that was a learning for me. That's really interesting. You mentioned hiring. My approach to hiring similar, but has always been, if you can, if I can find somebody with the people skills, I can teach them the tech, right? And I, I, I found that to be my best way to hire because it allows me to get to that. You say, you don't know what you've got until you've dug into it and teaching yeah. somebody the tech and showing that, but them coming in with the building, able to manage those relationships is huge. And I think something that gets overlooked when we're hiring, especially for engineering and not quite leadership, but you know, these low level engineering positions where you really do need to work as a team and find somebody who has those, the, those qualities, even if they don't know the full tech stack. Exactly. You know, what's beautiful about that too is that you can hire diverse people when you do that, mm -hmm. right? So there's entree right there for, you know, women or uh, underrepresented groups to join. I think that's wonderful. We've gotten through the technical questions. Let's talk a little bit, just a kind of couple get to know you questions, since I really didn't do the really back and forth at the beginning. How do you manage your work-life balance and your downtime? What <laughs> tips do you have with cloud computing? And the reason I ask this is because I think one of the biggest stresses for practitioners in the cloud operations space is we're always on call, right? It's, because we're always available. If we've got our laptop, if we've got our phone, if we've got our iPad, we're always able to dig into a problem and we have a tendency to do that. So Whoa. when it comes to cloud operations, how do you manage your work-life balance and, that, and get the downtime that you need? That's a very inter interesting question. Um, I think for me, my lifestyle is the most important. I wanna have a balanced lifestyle. Um, I have been in the industry over 25 years and I think within that time frame, I've had two weeks between jobs. Uh, and it wore on me. And so, you know, I thought, well, what the heck? I'm going to go try this consulting. I'm going to go build this consulting business. And I immediately got one client, uh, you know, Fortune 500 tech company. And I'm helping that that client. Um, and I'm not making as much money. And um, but I am so I'm, I'm so happy. I'm I'm very much uh, in tune with what's happening with my daughter and her last years of high school. I think that we, you know, I think my, you know, people in my peer group, um, it was all about money for me. I mean, I'll be honest, I was ready to, you know, make a lot of money. I, you know, I got out of finance and went right into sales because I figured out the comp plan. And I'm like, I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to acquire all these things. 
And then, you know, when the music stopped and I was laid off in January, it was like, well, what do I want to do? And I and I did interview with with the company and I ended up backing away from it. And I didn't want to be the VP of Cloud. I wanted to just be. And so I think that it's a balance of um, you know, what what kind of lifestyle you want. And I and I will tell you, I am addicted to the computer and peeling myself away sometimes is really difficult. Um, but you know, I calendar my time. I put time on my calendar to go to yoga. I put calendar, I, I, I put everything in one place. So I know I even put uh, to eat on my calendar. So I just, just really live by my, my calendar. And that's how I'm able to turn on and turn off. And I could talk all the way about tech. I love it. Same, same. I have a, and that's kind of the hard thing for me. And I've, had to learn that lesson the hard way is to calendar and really make time to get away and disconnect. And working from home has been a blessing and a curse, really, just yes. because I can focus while I'm at home. But sometimes I get too focused. Uh, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, you've been sitting there hacking on some code for 10 hours and you forgot and it's dark outside. And that's just, yeah. That's okay sometimes. <laughs> it is. It, 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 it's, Moving from a practitioner role to a developer relations and community advocacy role has really been kind of a fascinating switch for me because I come from that, I'm going to hack on this until I get it fixed. And now I get paid to hack on it as my job so that I understand it. It's kind of, it's kind of awesome, actually. Look, it's a hobby to an extent. We're doing what we love and there's no with that. I mean, that, that's the thing. I didn't get out of cloud or tech. I was like, I'm like, now I'm going to be of service to people who actually need help instead of being at one company to do it. And I love the conversations that I'm having with Tackle these days. I'm loving the conversations that I'm having with TSIA, you know, another consulting agency and, and, and the customers that I'm, that I'm working on, two customers. And it's like, I don't even know what my website's going to be up next uh, at the end of the month. I'm not, you know, I'm still building, but it's like, mm -hmm. I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. And so that's, if you're enjoying it, it's not work. That's right. Well, speaking of enjoying what we do, if you weren't working in tech, if you weren't working in the cloud, what would you what would you be doing? Uh, you know what I would love to do? I'd love to be a college professor. Oh, that's I would a good love, one. Yeah, I would love to be a college professor. I was thinking about that. I just don't want to go back and get more schooling. <laughs> Maybe I need to college or something. I could do. Favorite place to visit? Like if you could go anywhere for a vacation, where would you keep going back to? You know, I would go to Cartagena. Oh. Uh, things love yeah we I took my daughter there it was probably the most spiritual place that I ever went and I was magical and I thought my god um I gotta come back it was I can't even explain it it was just like almost like tear tears of like just so much uh rich uh religion and 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 spirit in that in Cartagena it was it was wonderful that's awesome Netflix show that you're really into what do you like to stream what do you like to binge watch Breaking Batter is completely addicted to. And what else am I binge watching? No, I don't, not really. I watched a lot of CNBC lately, to be honest. I know that sounds really boring, but I really love to, to really listen to the analysts and see where they're going with the market. And I'm a little, I like to trade, but I, I but uh, I don't know. I, I, you know, I actually just got Netflix during the pandemic. That's how out of it I was. Um, and my friend told me to spend the morning dollars. So. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is one down time looks on. Oh, there's more points. So, well, I mean, I, I think that really 
kind of wraps up. If people want to get in contact with you and talk about consulting or talk about women in tech or some of these initiatives that you're in, where can we find you? Well, you'll be able to go to Mercata.io soon, um, or you can email me at cpuccio at Mercata, M-E-R-K-A-T-A.io. And that's my email, or you can, or LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn, Christine Puccio. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time with us today. Uh, really appreciate your insight and your answers. It was a lot of fun just kind of going back and forth. Thanks for joining us. This has been Cloud Control with your host, Sean Harris. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts from. You can email me directly at sean.harris at protonmail.com. Or you can interact with me on social media. I'm on Twitter at inktater, I-N-K-E-D-T-A-T-E-R, to give feedback about the episodes and the topics you want to hear us discussing as we create more episodes centered around all things cloud ops. And until next time, we'll catch you in the cloud.